I'm Chef Mike Anthony, and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we'll be talking with chefs and authors about their favorite ingredients. We then talk to the producer of those ingredients. We learn about their history, how it's made, and why chefs love using it in their kitchens. Well, today is going to be a really fun episode. Let's get right into it. Eggplant. Love eggplant, John. Do you love it? I really do. Well, first, let's talk about who's coming on in a few minutes. We've got Chef Michael Anthony of Gramercy Tavern, a dear old friend, an amazing chef. I mean, one of the most iconic American Mm -hmm. restaurants right here in New York City. And I, I was so excited when we asked him what he wanted to talk about. And he said eggplant. I mean, it's one of my favorite vegetables. It's a vegetable that I describe as creamy, um, which I think is kind of unusual for a vegetable yeah. to have that like rich, luscious texture. No, I get it. So, I mean, I love it in baba ganoush, eggplant parm. You, you name it, I put, I will put eggplant in it. I've been, I was growing up. Here's a confession. I have mm-hmm. an eggplant confession. Ooh. I was always like freaked out and scared yeah. of eggplant. Like, like it's this purple, bulbous purple mm-hmm. thing. And then it just eggplant didn't, it sounded weird to me. And like, you know, my family was, you know, like eggplant parm, like yep. at a holiday, they'd break out a tray of this. And yeah. I would stay like a hundred feet away from it because I'd be like, I don't want that don't eggplant like that. stuff. Like there's little seeds in there and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And now I have to say that, like, if you put eggplant parm in front of me, I'm like, I'm salivating You're again as I'm talking about it. Love to eat it. I love to make it. Do you feel like eggplant's like an adult vegetable almost? Well, 100%. Like Brussels sprouts, yeah, like yeah. all of those, you know, kind of vegetables that you don't really appreciate until you're older, yeah, I think. Definitely. I have to say, so, you know, John, I recently moved and my new next door neighbor, mm-hmm. her father, he makes his own charcuterie. They can a thousand pounds of tomatoes ever they sound a jar. Italian. Are they Italian? Half Italian. Um, and he pickles or almost preserves eggplant. Mm-hmm. And the first weekend we moved in, my neighbor gifted us this eggplant. Mm-hmm. Epic. It he literally he grills it, he puts it in a jar, covers it with garlic, herbs, and olive oil, and it preserves in the jar. You can mm. smear it on can bread. Can you get me a jar? Yes, 100%. It was, oh, good. If you I had remember, dreams I like about this eggplant. Ugh, so good. We're also going to be talking to an amazing California farmer. I can't, I'm so excited about this. Sean Mindrum. He's the owner of Comanche Creek Farms. Yeah. And he's growing some unique heirloom varieties of eggplant, not just, you know, kind of the globe that we're used to. Mm-hmm. So I can't wait to hear all about all the different varieties and what he's up to in California. All right. Well, this is the eggplant episode of Ingredient Insiders. It's going to be a real fun show. This season of Ingredient Insiders is brought to you by Bazzini Nuts. Bazzini is the brand of choice among chefs in the finest hotels and restaurants. Their legacy of quality extends to gourmet retail stores, specialty boutiques, grocery distributors, and delis, ensuring you have access to their extensive range of consumer retail packages. It all started in 1886 when Italian immigrant Anthony L. Bazzini began selling nuts by the pound to bakers, street vendors, and individuals during the Great Depression. But Bazzini Nuts isn't just about peanuts. They offer a delightful array of nuts like cashews, almonds, pecans, pistachios, hazelnuts, and more. Plus, a tempting selection of dried fruit, including apricots, cranberries, figs, dates, prunes, and tomatoes. 
So whether at the ballpark, in the kitchen, or indulging in some well-deserved self-care, choose Bazzini Nuts. With a legacy spanning 137 years, they're here to serve your needs with the same consistency, reliability, and quality, making them an iconic name in the world of nuts and dried fruits. Bazzini Nuts, tradition, quality, and taste all in one. Taste the legacy today. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios in New York City. I'm so happy that we have Chef Mike Anthony here today. We've known each other a very long time. He's a big deal. Back into the 90s. He's a very big deal. Yeah. But I was talking to Todd Hayes, who's a veteran Chef's Warehouse sales rep, and Todd had come from a meeting at Gramercy Tavern. He's like, John, you know... I was talking to Mike Anthony. You got to get him on the podcast because he's a wealth of information. He's so passionate about everything. And I was like, done. Todd, like Todd, I, yeah. Todd's the best. Uh, within 10 seconds, I was texting you saying, will you please come on our podcast? Begging I appreciate him. it. Yeah. Thanks I've for known you. Me. Yeah. It's so nice to have you. When did we meet? You were working in New York. You've been working in New York forever. My first sous chef job was at March Restaurant. And yep. I think that's probably where we yep. got to know each other. Chef I, Wayne Nish. Wayne Nish, Joseph Scalise, um, beautiful restaurant on 58th Street. In a townhouse. Uh, it was in a townhouse. It was like a jewel box. And it had such a great reputation um, in New York City, but also kind of in the industry. Andrew was in elementary school when this was happening. <laughs> yep, that's correct. What years were, were it was, you there? It was ways back. This it was, was 1990s. Was yeah, it was in the yeah. 90s. I moved to New York City in 95, and I, I worked at the restaurant Danielle, which was an amazing way to get to you know learn about the city and that amazing restaurant. And I worked there for a couple of years, and then Wayne hired me as a sous chef. I started placing orders, and it was completely unqualified. Um, but thanks to you and others, we found our way. That was great because I was unqualified too back in the mid 1990s. So we were just <laughs> making it happen. We were all unqualified. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then from there, you went to Blue Hill. Yep. Was in, it right from March to Blue Hill? Yeah, yeah. I was in the city at first and then moved up to Westchester. And, and you were at Stone, Stone Barns. Barns. Amazing. And I think that when you were at Blue Hill, and when you were at Stone Barns, I don't, and maybe this was true before, but you really became someone who was immersed in the farmers' markets and the local produce scene, yeah. In all these artisanal yeah. producers, was that a result of being with Blue Hill, or was that just something that inherently you were doing already? You know, it's the ethos of of that restaurant and that organization. Um, interestingly enough, um, at March, Wayne would say interesting things like, look, I think it may be more interesting being located near the airport than near the farmer's market. And while I have an infinite amount of respect for his wisdom and, you know, here's a, a, a New Yorker grown up in the city in a melting pot of, you know, influences. And that was his style. He, he created dishes that shunned, um, the connection to tradition and followed his, you know, imagination and his whims. That restaurant cooked food in ways that you just can't find because it was truly original. And so I, you know, my job working for Wayne was going to uh, Chinatown twice a week, and you know, buying an eclectic um, and wide variety of ingredients. Um, whereas, you know, 
Blue Hill was about telling a story of um, a place and seasonality and, you know, what grows here. And now the synthesis of all that is at Gramercy Tavern, you know, the we're yearning to tell the story of what's unique about eating in this place. So not necessarily doubling down on, you know, patting ourselves on the back that we're better cooks than anyone or that, you know, we have ingredients that you can't yourself just buy um, from the market or, you know, from local sources. But it's the notion of eating at Gramercy Tavern is a unique experience and coupled with um, a warm hospitality and, you know, the earnestness of the team there and, you know, focus on on the fine details that go into having a great dining experience. That restaurant truly is, you know, um, every day one of these places that creates moments that are anchored to a specific time and place. But you've been at Gramercy for... So is it 17 years? Yeah. That's, that's I that mean, nervous cough. <clears throat> yeah. But yeah. like in chef years, that's like 100 years. Yeah, it's it's a very rare um, situation. And I feel so lucky to be a part of that organization. Um, my time there was split into several tours of duty. We, you know, I had the, um, the pleasure to open another restaurant within the company um, in the Whitney Museum uh, called Untitled. Mm -hmm. And... It was a great way for the team at Gramercy Tavern at that point that had, you know, a solid 10 years of working together to blossom and, you know, kind of offshoot talent and work in a, a pretty cool place on the West Side. Unfortunately, it was a um, casualty of the pandemic and yeah. it's no longer there. Um, but I'm proud of what we created. And it was I've a great I've eaten there. It was delicious. Mm -hmm. It's a quintessential New York restaurant, yeah. a landmark at this juncture. And it's also been a breeding ground for some of the greatest chefs in the history of the United States or the, you know, the culinary world. Yeah. The opening chef was Tom Colicchio. Am I saying that right? That's right. 30 years ago? Yeah. Or we're we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the restaurant next summer. That's and incredible. It just, you know, that's a, a rare thing to begin yeah. with in our industry. But like you said, it, it's been a springboard for so, so much talent, yeah. so many Amazing Marco Canora, oh, Jonathan Marco. Benno, yeah. Claudia Fleming, who's who now works for who's still working the for the Danny Meyer uh, group. Karen Damasco, Karen Damasco, who's back now as your pastry she chef, is the pastry chef, and I'm sure I'm missing a myriad of like amazing people who've come through that kitchen. A list, a, a list that's too long to say all in one breath, but we're gonna invite many people back over the um, coming year to come back and do tavern takeovers and oh, be nice. back. At Gramercy Tavern in, in celebration of that 30 year. And Gramercy is also unique in that there is, and I correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't been for a couple of years, but you got a front dining room tavern menu. Yes. And then a little bit more refined back dining room menu. I couldn't say it better. We, <laughs> we you know, it's interesting for a beloved restaurant, it, you know, Danny launched the duality of this concept. And he and Tom saw Gramercy Tavern as the love child of the famous you know, three Michelin star restaurant in Paris called Taivon. Uh -huh. And and that represented the the North Star of excellence for them. And they coupled that with the idea of the warmth and the American hospitality, the enlightened hospitality of Union Square Cafe. And the offshoot was, you know, Gramercy Tavern. The is, greatest is American Gramercy restaurant. Yeah. As you describe it, I'm like, is there a better right. American, you know, restaurant in the United States? Interestingly Certainly enough, one of the best. Absolutely. After the uh, pandemic, we now have what we call the garden. Uh -huh. which is our ongoing outdoor dining venue. Um, still going strong. 
Great. Um, <clears throat> we'll see how the city evolves in the coming year, but it's it's been a wonderful addition. And and we, we have a private dining room in that restaurant that seats 20. And it, it took a, an amazing decision for Danny and Tom to think about using that prime real estate as a private dining room. And it, I think it really set – that restaurant set so many firsts in motion – and it continues to be a great way to experience Gramercy Tavern. I, I have a first there, and it's kind of corny, but I will tell you, I ate there way back when, when Tom and, and uh, Claudia were in the kitchen. And I remember distinctly, this is going back 20 years, I remember dishes specifically coming out. One was a scalp dish, but I will never forget, and today, and we've talked about this before, and it sounds mm. silly, a chocolate cake came out for dessert, and I cut you know, put my spoon or fork into it and it oozed chocolate and yeah. it was a molten chocolate cake that Claudia made and it was never seen before. And today it's like, you could probably get that at, uh, you know, a lot of different type of restaurants. She is masterful. It was innovative at the time yeah. and it was mind boggling yeah. to be honest with you. I'm embarrassed to say that today, but I, and it left a deep imprint. The approach to the creation of her desserts was kind of um, almost from a chef's perspective, a pastry chef making flavors and textures. And, you know, her, her cookbook is one of the most revered. And she has an imprint on Karen's style, which is equally masterful. And that there's a little deception when you look at those desserts. They appear so simple on the plate. They're, you know, visually, it's not intended to create these fireworks of, I can't believe what this is. I don't know how to eat this. Right. I don't know what it is. And it's the opposite. It's a sense of warmth that brings you in and it invites you to discover it. And then it it kind of demands that you just take a minute out of your day to pay attention to what you're eating. And, and that's when the magic happens, the textures and the sharp flavors and the interesting contrasts. It's yeah, they they both have really impacted the industry in such a huge way. It's amazing to get to work with both of them. Yeah. So, you know, we love you know, when we ask guests to be on the podcast, you know, what ingredient do you want to talk about? So why don't you tell us the ingredient that we're talking about? It's hilarious because um, our front of the house and when they we hire new people and their first day, I think we kind of put them on the spot a little mm -hmm. bit. It's usually the kitchen that says something like, let's have you cook out of a mystery basket, which I hate. Yeah. And but that is, you know, I hate putting people in those moments, mm -hmm. but we do that when we invite these people to, in front of the everyone. Front of the house, yeah, people. the front wow. of the house says in our in our pre service meeting, if you could be a vegetable or fruit, what would you be? And people are like, Oh my god, how do I answer? So you this? asked me that question, and I was like, Okay, fine. I've been thinking about this a lot. Eggplant. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, to talk about eggplant is a, a real pleasure because it it we can connect to it and relate to it in so many different ways. And as we were discussing earlier, as a kid, I was a terrible eater and I couldn't, I thought it was such a foreign, strange thing that I saw my grandparents growing in their garden. Mm -hmm. And I was just kind of mystified, but I'm not curious right. enough to I want to go agree. after it. <laughs> you I saw eggplant's egg, like a scary vegetable, was, right? As a kid, yeah. it was like, what is this purple thing? Mm -hmm. and like, I'm not eating that. Yeah. And yeah. my Italian grandparents would you know, do a lot of different things with it. And I still fully rejected it until I discovered maybe like a really good Italian-American eggplant parm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where it didn't taste like a vegetable. Breaded, fried, covered in it, sauce and cheese. Right. You know, we made a, a, a GT version of eggplant parm uh, that came up during the pandemic. It was really a kind of a practical approach. And 
when people started dining again at the restaurant, it was outside. And we had to find a way to deliver dishes all the way out there and keep them hot and delicious. And I think it was one of the things that Danny enjoyed the most uh, about those kind of early days, you know, two, three years ago, we were getting back into it is that that GT version of the eggplant it's parm. Eggplant parm. I mean, I think that was like the entry drug for me for eggplant. eggplant. Yeah. Yeah. But my mind also goes so many places. So I see the word eggplant in your note back to us. And the first thing that came into my head was baba ganoush, you know, and Mediterranean flavors and how I thought about char. I thought about herbaceousness. I thought about creaminess. And then I was like, wait a second, eggplant parm. And then you think about Asian dishes and how, I mean, it originated in China. So, you know, there's such a, it, it spans every single culture. The, the first thing that popped in my head was ratatouille. There you go. Because <laughs> I've been making it all summer yeah. long. John, I can see the fireworks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anyone can cook. Um, so let's talk about eggplants when you go to the market. There's so many, I, I don't know that everyone is aware of how many varietals there are. We, uh, you know, consumers go to the supermarket, they see that big glow purple mm -hmm. looking one, but there's a lot of different ones. Tell us about some of the different eggplants that you come across. That's maybe a green specifically market. at, you know, Union Square Green Market. Yeah. Well, one of our closest partners at the green market, uh, Norwich Meadows Farm, um, is a uh, a very adept at growing eggplant. And like all plants, you know, it has to do with the way they nourish the soil that they grow in. And their farm is located in central New York. Uh, Norwich, New York is in Shenango County, kind of a little closer to Syracuse than New York City. So it's a long, long drive. Um, but they, you know, they grow a great Asian varietal that um, is maybe about um, an inch to an inch and a half, two inches in diameter. It has a kind of both the best of both worlds. It has the meatiness that you expect from kind of a large Italian variety. And it also has the delicateness of kind of a lot of Asian varieties. And, you know, with eggplant, one of the challenges for, for people, for cooks of all kinds, is dealing with the bitterness. Mm -hmm. And so the, the fir first things first is when you buy certain varieties, the bitterness is really almost non-existent. And so that's one of the things that has steered us in that direction for loving those those um, those curly, long, lavender-colored um, Asian varieties. So eggplant is a, is a great one because it grows so prolifically and we use a lot of it at the restaurant. You were talking about um, you know, baba ganoush and mm -hmm. the, the char. I mean, it's just a perfect partner for the tavern, which has a wood burning grill. And, yeah. you know, a couple of years ago, we we stopped looking at that as the all American grill and started thinking about how do we cook with fire? Yeah. And so, you know, in it, on it, around it, using smoke to flavor the food. And so it, it, it has an, a natural affinity to, you know, to that style of cooking. Not an easy way to cook if you go into the tavern and you see you only see two, two cooks. And so a lot of people will say, a lot of guests will say, wow, this is a big restaurant for two cooks. Obviously, that is just <laughs> yes, one <it> station. Is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very hard one. But it's also pretty cool to get to cook over open an open wood burning fire. Yeah. Do you um, cook like I'm, I'm picturing like your kitchen and is it something that you do? And oh, yeah. keep a crust, like keep have, eggplant on the counter oh, or? Um, I have three kids mm -hmm. and pickled eggplant is not their favorite thing to eat, I, I will have to say. Um, but in fact, eggplant is not one of their favorite <laughs> ingredients. So I'm the one begging to, you know, to, to, 
serve more eggplant at home. Um, so they they are good eaters. They pay attention in some ways. You know, we've created some very discerning diner, diners mm-hmm. out of these young ladies. Um, but uh, so that we, I do cook at home, and yeah. I, I love to cook whether I'm at our place in the city or at my in laws. Um, my brother and sister in law make wine at Channing Daughters Winery and are amazing cooks, and we get together and and have great dinner parties together. Um, How do John so. and I get on the invite list to these dinner parties? What's going on here? <laughs> well, we're headed out this weekend, so. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm free. Me too. Let's go. I'm paging through this beautiful book that you've written, V is for Vegetables, in the eggplant section. James, Boor- James Beard award-winning cookbook. Yes, it's beautiful. That is um, thanks to Dorothy Kalins, the... Uh, my co-author and the producer of this book, who is a masterful storyteller and put, to get, put together the, the same team that worked on the Gramercy Tavern cookbook that we wrote a few years before this. Um, and Dorothy is just amazing. It, she's a close friend. And <clears throat> as it turns out, we live in the same building. So this book came together in her apartment. And it was, I think, one of the kind of magical qualities of this book is no matter how much you tone down recipes when you're shooting them in a restaurant – you know, restaurants are filled with stainless steel and professional equipment. And, you know, every chef says, this is simple cooking. And we roll our eyes and say, sure it is. And in this case, you can see the the dishes, you know, are made by hand and coming. There's a lot of process uh, photo shots by Maura McAvoy, who's a great photographer and a lovely collaborator. While I was making these dishes, I would bring a basket full of vegetables. Jenny Jones, one of our former employees who was the head purchaser at, at Gramercy Tavern would help us collect these things from the market early in the morning. We'd get them to Dorothy's house. I would cook. Mora is like on the counter, on the table, on the chair, shooting as it happens. Um, we would uh, write the recipes in the moment, eat them for lunch, make adjustments. And in a year, this this book was shot Stunning. and done. Um, so it was a, a real privilege. And we had a great time working together. And it's thanks to her. Here, flip the page, John. I'm seeing this recipe here, grilled eggplant with miso glaze. Yes. Let's talk about that. Okay. So, yeah, we were talking about how we were talking a little bit about my grandparents and mm-hmm. kind of looking at it from an, through an Italian lens. But I started cooking professionally in Japan. I had graduated from college and was traveling and exploring and wandering. And I, I decided to give it a shot. I had always been interested in restaurants. And I, quite frankly, I thought I had missed the boat. Um, but I was a long way away from family and friends, and I decided to – I wrote a letter to the uh, food critic of the International Herald Tribune. Didn't know the guy. Mm-hmm. He answered. Wow. And, wow. and I said, I'm interested in working in a kitchen. Is that even possible for an American living in Japan? And he was kind enough to introduce me to a chef named Shizu Yoshima who had a French-Japanese bistro in the middle of Roppongi in, um, in Tokyo, and she gave me the chance to – work in her kitchen. And I promised I would, you know, follow the rules, do work hard, do the best I could. And uh, I, I thought I was going to die. It was a very tough experience. Well, it had to be a life-changing experience. It was such an amazing experience. I, I learned everything that I picked up years later in cooking school in my first few years of cooking and all in that first year. She was such a good teacher. But you know how in restaurants frequently, maybe even uh, involuntarily, you kind of live out your experiences. Sometimes they're rough. And, mm-hmm. you know, historically in Japan, apprenticeships are a little um, formal and can, can be a little, yeah, a little rude. 
And um, in her case, I, I, I got the full sense that it was important to transmit knowledge and information and not just like how to make things, but how to work. And it made me fall in love with the business because there's not a day that I don't think about those sensible things. What's the right tool for the right job, the right size pan for a particular dish, the time frame involved, the preparation and the mental and physical preparation. And all those things were, I went back and I have all the little notebooks that I took in, in that first year working in her restaurant. And Do you speak Japanese? I mean, was there a language <laughs> barrier? Uh, I was studying the language then really diligently. And I knew he, he's so smart. I, I, knew, I, was, I knew it. <laughs> well, I think, you know, language is a way to connect with people. And if you don't learn the actual words and the phrases, and you're not trying to understand the culture, it's tough to sure. get it from the outside. So yeah, that that's something I've always been interested in. And it I was lucky enough that it kind of, you know, I was able to throw myself into it. And, um, and she did not, you know, make it easy. Um, so I have these ex expressions of like, you know, what, what does such and such mean in Japanese? And I would go back and now I know it means like, uh, do it like this, you dummy. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Does she still have a restaurant in Tokyo? The restaurant has changed hands and uh -huh. she's in, in retirement. But mm -hmm. I, a couple of years ago, I took two sous chefs from Gramercy Tavern, um, Howard Kalashnikov and Saman Javid with me on a trip. We were cooking at the New York Bar and Grill in the Tokyo Park Hyatt and, um, I took them in the neighborhood to show them. And it was such a mind bending experience to see them walking down the street that was such a lonely place for me early mm -hmm. on. I was having, you know, such a long year and a half of working there and struggling and seeing these two giants walk down the street, you know, looking lovingly at the place where I had worked was pretty cool. Um, so, but unfortunately, yeah, she has since retired and moved on and, uh, but you know, so we, the reason why I bring this up is because I, I had another revelation with eggplant living in Japan is like, again, the varietals are so tender and so, you know, sweet. And um, there's a recipe in this book called Dengaku, which Dengaku is at this point, I think, becoming quite familiar in the West. It's a savory and sweet combination of miso paste, mirin, sugar, uh, sake, and it's easy, you know, as many of these core elements of Japanese cooking are to bring together. These days, most everyone who likes to eat uh, in the States is familiar with miso. Um, we have access to a lot of great misos. Um, it, it's a direct connection to the, you know, the simple fermentation process of, you know, soybeans, uh, koji, koji yeah. and a little salt. Um, and the flavor profile is so magical. And combined with the meatiness and the sweetness of the eggplant itself, uh, whether you grill it or saute it, roast it, and then kind of coat it in this paste and then finish by caramelizing it, it's just an irresistible combination and such a great way to kind of explore really Japanese home cooking. Dengaku kind of refers to, I guess, the word itself refers to uh, festivals and some, you know, connected to rice plantings, et cetera. It goes, it's, you know, an ancient word. But um, but it's an everyday uh, flavor combination. It's in everybody's table at home in Japan and in bento boxes. And so mm -hmm. um, a great way to kind of bring that into your home if you're cooking here. That's you, great. I yeah. mean, I, one thing I was going to say, I've been to Tokyo once. I was very surprised to see how much 
miso glaze there was on traditional foods. I always thought it was the invention of a, a Japanese chef in America who was, you know, miso glaze, miso cod. glazing cod and miso glazing fish. And then I found out this is one of the most traditional home f- cooked meals there is. Yeah. And I love that this is an application that's, you know, plant forward and eggplant forward that you ju- you're doing a similar thing where you're glazing the, yeah. the eggplant. It's such an, an easy gesture. And I think what you're talking about is the, um, the artistry of Nobu. He, he popularized that dish, which comes from, a, again, a traditional background, but yet put like the spotlight on it and celebrated it like no one other. And so that miso glazed cod also sim- similar in spirit. Um, yeah, I mean, it changed, I think, our collective minds about, mm-hmm. you know, the connection we have with Japanese food. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Is eggplant on the menu right now at Gramercy Tire? Oh, if yeah. I went to, okay. Yeah. Tell us how you're preparing it. Well, the interesting thing is it, it over the years, we never really go by a playbook. We're not opening up our notebooks and saying, let's do page 55. Uh, this worked. This year, um, uh, Brianna Cruz Rabago, who is uh, one of the sous chefs at Cramercy Tavern, and the sous chefs play an integral role in menu development. So this is her idea. She combined a beautiful um, roasted eggplant with an eggplant puree. So kind of like the baba ganoush, mm-hmm. a little bit of those same smoky flavors. She introduced kind of some uh, pickled onion, some beautiful herbs, and it is paired with a um, a bright kale puree and goes with... Uh, a, a grilled uh, sirloin steak set. And so that's where it makes its appearance like today on the menu. You can find it showing up in, in many different combinations uh, and different dishes and it will. So, you know, one of the things in restaurants that has always been, a I understand it, but we decided to to not follow the classic rule of when you're writing a menu and you have an ingredient on the menu, it generally is not supposed to repeat itself. So if eggplant shows up in one dish, it's not really supposed to appear in the rest of the menu, you know, with variety and diversity in mind. I look at it differently. When it's this season and eggplant is in season, we try to do the opposite. We we want it to show up in as many places as it possibly can, Mm -hmm. as long as we're handling it differently. And eggplant requires that. So it's perfect ingredient to make many appearances. I love that. You can do an eggplant tasting menu. Which that you've probably fun. done in your long, illustrious you know, career. That is interesting. And we're going to come back to that very soon. We call them um, market menus and we lead uh-huh. people who are interested for a walk through the market and introduce them to, um, you know, to our favorite vendors and, and farmers. And then we do a ingredient theme menu. Not too long. It happens on Friday afternoons in the dining room this year. We've always done this kind of separately mm-hmm. in our private dining room. But it's a way to do this, uh, an ingredient-based menu where eggplant will make an appearance in every single first, second, and third uh, courses. And it it has proven to be a really popular way for people to experience lunch at Gramercy Tavern in our dining room. So we've, we're getting, you know, warmed up for it. Every, it's kind of like the, we're busy right now. I mean, so busy. You're always busy. Barely 30 years of busyness. Yeah. But at, in New York City, after Labor Day, things hit a whole new level. And so I think we're going to try to um, bring people back to, you know, visit the pleasure of having lunch in the dining room through those ingredient-based menus. That's and lovely. a little walk. You need come, to invite. Come with us. Yeah, I we should go it. to the eggplant I'm one. I'm accepting the invitation <laughs> yes. whenever it is. We will be there. I'm not saying no. 
Well, this has been no, John, a fantastic conversation. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean, no, Andrea? I'm, I'm not done. You're not done. I'm not done either. I think we have I mean, to have Michael back for a, yes. another conversation just about Japan. Absolutely. Um, but I know. Oh, and now I know what Andrea is alluding to. Okay. Andrea loves to ask this question every time we question. have someone on. I feel like it's like the behind, you know, like remember like MTV Cribs and you would like go and like they would always open the fridge. I love this question. So I want to, if I open your fridge, if I open your pantry at home, at home, yeah, I know you have kids, so I'm, you know, you're obviously cooking a little bit at home. Oh yeah. Oh, I do. For sure. Mm -hmm. What are the five ingredients that you have to have at all times in the pantry, in the pantry? Five. So, okay. My answers are going to come across as like a little obvious, but. Um, it is important to have a couple different kinds of salt that you're mm-hmm. familiar with. And I use kosher salt. I use fleur de sel. Um, salt is an important one. Number two, not a surprise either, garlic. Mm-hmm. Um, at home, we have a family heirloom garlic that actually came through my great-grandfather and his youngest brother. What garlic brings is not just history and tradition, but it brings a... Um, a base of flavor that <clears throat> has a huge impact in the food you're cooking. So yeah, garlic it's like has foundational. been- foundational. And the fact that over the years we've had um, friends that have grown this family heirloom and have been very protective of it and um, not allowed it to cross and paid close attention to the fields in between growing seasons, um, we're lucky to kind of keep this family heirloom alive, so to speak. And uh, while it is a little bit of a sentimental story, it's- it has a, a real impact on on the flavor. And so with that, the next kind of logical item that is similarly discreet, but um, dried uh, chili flakes. And mm-hmm. those chili flakes um, are important in terms of the choice of the peppers that were grown and the way in which the seeds themselves are um, dried and, and saved from year to year. And, <clears throat> you know, combined with guess this is where we go in here. This is maybe my third olive mm-hmm. oil mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, lightly browned uh, garlic. Those chili flakes come alive and create a little bit of a, a trinity that um, is hard to put your finger on, but it connects you to the people who grow these foods. And it, it I am 100% sure it also brings a certain healthy quality. And so- <clears throat> Doesn't the smell of that, like I'm picturing right now, like- the smell of warming the garlic and olive oil and the chili flake. It's like I'm in my grandfather's it, kitchen. Is there a greater pasta sauce no. that is simpler than doing what you just described? Yeah. Just, you know, either microplaning garlic or mincing it and mm-hmm. throwing some chili peppers and olive oil together in a pan. That's all I need with my spaghetti. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, if you're going on to um, recipes that have a few steps involved, Onions, and it seems like onions are uh, a, again a ubiquitous thing. But when you're working with fresh onions grown from the garden or on a farm, they bring a base of flavor that is the essence to most of the things that we eat. Mm-hmm. And you can cook them in so many different ways to emphasize, you know, sweetness or bitterness or you know, caramelized flavors. And so, you know, that that again is a it's just a critical part of in the first step of any great soup, sauce, um, stews. And so that's my five. But then let's not forget, if you're looking in the pantry, like capers, olives. I think that's the greatest pantry list we've ever heard. Absolutely. <laughs> um, this has been a true joy. 
Thank you so much. Great pleasure to yeah. talk to you and have you here. And obviously, we're going to have to have Mike back. 100%. To talk about, garlic, talk about garlic and Japan yeah. and everything else that uh, you need to buy this book, V is for Vegetables. Yep. Amazing and beautiful book, The Executive Chef of Gramercy Tavern. Thank you so much. Great to see you, John. It's been far too long, but great to see you. So nice to be here. Thank you. Thanks again. For more than 30 years, Tribeca Oven has been committed to providing you with great-tasting, handcrafted, frozen, par-baked artisan bread. Their passion is delivering exceptional flavor, quality, and versatility in every loaf, roll, and baguette, from elevated table bread to upgraded burger options. With Tribeca Oven, you will enjoy an elevated bread experience that will keep you and your customers returning for more. Don't miss the opportunity to elevate your menu with Tribeca Oven Artisan Bread. Try the latest additions to the baguette line, the Harvest Grain Baguette. Featuring a hint of sweetness topped with a special blend of cracked wheat, flax, oats, rye, and sunflower seeds, which is also incorporated into the dough, this baguette will bring a uniqueness to your table bread offering or sandwich menu that will keep your guests' taste buds satisfied. One taste is all the proof you'll need. Contact your sales rep today to request your samples. All right, John, we are here with Sean Mindrum from Comanche Creek Farms. An incredible farm. Incredible, growing a wide variety of vegetables, but we're gonna be speaking specifically about eggplant. And also happens to be located in one of the great growing areas of the country. Where exactly is Comanche Creek Farms? It's about 100 miles north of Sacramento, or if you reverse it, 100 miles south of Reading. Is that considered the Yolo Valley or no? No, you'd be Butte County, so south, still Sacramento Valley. Amazing. It's a beautiful area for growing produce. Are you growing 12 months of the year? 12 months of the year. Amazing. And how yeah. did you, tell us a little bit about like your, I know you're the owner, but tell us how you got to Comanche Creek. So I was a chef for 38 years prior to becoming a farmer. Amazing. Wow. Um, I found myself um, as a private chef and I found that it wasn't filling my soul anymore. So I found that Comanche Creek Farms was for sale. And I turned around and I knew of Comanche Creek product as buying it as a chef when I was a chef at Mustard's in Napa. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And as things kind of progressed, I worked the farm one summer and it was for sale. So I found someone to help me purchase it and away we went. Are you happy with that decision? Because yeah. farming is, I mean, I have this wonderful like vision mm -hmm. and dream that it would be so romantic to have a farm. But on the other hand, I know it's such hard work. 24-7. So are you happy with this decision? I'm happy with the decision. The yeah. decision is based on the fact that not only can I make a difference in people's lives with food, but I can make a difference in people's lives that help work that farm. Yeah. And from every facet that goes from that farm, I can help change their lives and help make their lives better on all ends. That's fantastic instead of just being it on a plate and then you shake hands and you see them go bye-bye. That's got to be really fulfilling. So how long have you owned Comanche? Since 2019. Okay. Awesome. What uh, What are the main items that you're growing at Comanche? We're going to talk about eggplants yeah, today. Yeah. I have a lot what, of questions. What are, you, what are you growing at Comanche? 
So our main commodities would be summer squash and tomatoes and cherry tomatoes. Mm-hmm. On average, our varieties for cherry tomatoes and summer squash vary in um, varieties, but they also vary in how many we grow each year. But on average, we grow 32 different varieties of cherry tomatoes and 42 different varieties of heirlooms. Wow. wow. I have questions for you. I have questions. Do you have a favorite variety of cherry tomato? I don't because each year kind of fluctuates it again. It changes by year? Well, the sugars change on mm-hmm. your cherry tomatoes. I mean, of course, everybody's, you know, all fall back on the sun gold, right. which has Love. got a lot of sugar. Yes. But at the same time, a lot of the other varieties have those sugars as well, but they vary throughout the season. So you could start with something that's very tart. And then as the season goes, all of a sudden you find that those have picked up sugar. So all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, this is amazing. So they, it fluctuates throughout the year and it fluctuates for myself with all those products. And that's the fun part about farming. And the fun part about farming to answer your question, am I you know, happy with my decision? Yes, I'm more than happy because not only does do I not have to look at the same customers all the time or the same person that I happen to be cooking for, but those people that I make happy vary from year to year and from season to season. So it's it never stops. Is it hard work? It's just as hard as being a chef. Probably sometimes harder because it's you. It's in a sense, it's your family that's growing out there. So you worry about whether that's too hot or it's too cold. Do I have enough water? Do I have enough fertilizer? Did I do the proper you know rotation of crop this year? So it's it becomes not only your little kid, but it's your family. Yeah. I want to talk about more about tomatoes and summer squash, but I, I also want to know how many varieties of eggplant and kind of learn a little bit about the eggplant season. So eggplant season <clears throat> is similar to okra, which for at least on our farm. Now, let me take a step back real quick. So eggplant can and tomatoes and all varieties of anything can have different seasons for different places on the planet. And for Chico, California, bean is the high temperature that it is, especially in the middle of August, and eggplant liking those temperatures. The flowers didn't start to really, really bloom this year until probably middle of July, but we planted them in May. So, but the plants look unbelievable this year. Last year it was a little bit earlier, and now it all depends on the heat. But usually we put the eggplant, our eggplant in the ground in around late April, early May. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then you don't really get fruit until August, mm-hmm. but again, depending on you know what you got going on, and then it will uh, keep having fruit for at least for us in Chico until probably the first frost, which is usually about late October, early November. Tell us about some of the varietals you're growing. You're growing the globe is, is it the globe eggplant? Globe. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a yeah. globe artichoke too, right? I was there confusing are, yeah. myself as I said that. Um, globe, we, we've got globe glowing. The year before, we used to do Japanese eggplant or ping tong long, mm-hmm. um, which seemed to be everybody's favorite. But then that kind of you know dropped off. So then we turned around this year and we drew three different types. We drew um, a white eggplant, and then we grew the globe eggplant, and then we grew uh, the Bianca eggplant, which is that nice kind of purple shaded white eggplant, yeah. which is beautiful. And then we just do either straights or we sell it as a mixed variety. As you described that, you kind of brought a thought into my mind, which is, are you planting, dictating upon what the chefs and restaurants or retailers are asking for? 
or are you planting just because you got some cool seeds and you want to check out what comes out? So it'll be both. Um, I, <laughs> you're definitely a risk taker being a farmer for one, because mother nature's you're at mother nature's whim. Yeah. The other part is you're also at the consumer's whim, whether it's going to be popular, whether it's not going to be popular, you know, so eggplant is a touchy one because not everybody loves eggplant. Mm -hmm. So the Japanese eggplant dropping off, I was like, and that's a specific customer that's going to go after the Japanese eggplant. So the globe eggplant, I was kind of like, okay, Hey, it's a, you know, wide range variety. So therefore, you know, maybe our chances are a little bit better pleasing some people. And the fact that we're growing three different types, we could either do straights or we could do a mix. So this year, unfortunately, it's been a little rough on eggplant only because eggplant just, they just didn't flower as much as they should. Now, whether or not that was our issue as farmers or whether it's mother nature's, I'll never know that because it also, from hearing through the grapevine, other farmers are having the same issue. I was going to ask, do farmers talk to other farmers and say, hey, you know what? I'm not getting flowers here. This one's not growing. Are you having the same issue? Or do you guys keep it close to the vest? In the first years of owning Comanche Creek Farms, it was a little rough on the farm only because the, and I don't want to throw anybody into a category, but at the same time, some of the older farmers seem to be a little bit more reluctant. Uh Uh-huh. And and I've never been that way, even even as a chef. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it, just because my tiramisu recipe, I, I can make it my way. If I turned around and handed you the recipe, it's going to turn out completely different, right. unless we follow each other's backs all the way through. Right. So, go, reaching out to other farmers and saying, "Hey, what are your experiences?" was rough the first few years, but now as I kind of have a little bit more sea legs myself, and probably gained a little bit more respect with other farmers there, you know, and I'm still standing, so it's been a little bit easier now and more people are reaching out, which I think should be the case because we're all in this boat together and yeah. help each other. Yeah. Why not? Friendly farmers helping yeah. one another. I like that. And then you said harvest is in August. Is there eggplant? Do they hold over for several months? Like, do, or is it something that's got to be sold? And yeah, eggplant, you got about a, maybe two weeks. Got it. You know, and that's, and that's making sure you have the proper conditions to continue to, you know, take care of it. Yep which would be ambient, 55 degrees, you know, something that's not too cold, not too hot. Eggplant tends to get wrinkly quick. It's also got a sticky skin, so therefore you need to wrap them when you pack them. Eggplant's so, a funny funny thing. It is. Do you, ref- do you refrigerate it? When I you, do when I get do? it at home. Yeah, it's best because, uh, you know, the unfortunate part is by the time you get it, it's probably at least a week old from the farmer unless you're getting it direct. Yeah. So tell us, as a former chef who's now a farmer... What are your favorite recipes to make with eggplant? (laughs) (laughs) Eggplant for me still, I know it's going to sound funny, but there's still just two ways that I like eggplant. One, I like it simple and I like it tempura fried, Mm -hmm. which is just basic, but still it's it's clean. And then the other way is simply grilled and turned into a lasagna, which I just like it only because... I'm a fan of eggplant, but I'm not so much a fan of eggplant. And then the other, the third way I would have to say is turn it into baba ganoush. Yeah, absolutely. Some good roasted garlic, some, take that eggplant and roast it down over the fire and then peel it, puree it, a little bit extra virgin olive oil, some roasted garlic, a pinch of salt. You're happy. I love that answer because I thought when you said two ways, Mm -hmm. the thing that immediately popped into my head was eggplant parm. And Baba Ganoush. Breaded, fried, 
No, not, oh. not and caponata. Oh yeah, almost like uh, you know the Sicilian Italian style. Yeah, sure. Um, or or even like a ratatouille. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, I've learned so much in fifteen minutes. We love Thank talking you, about. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Absolutely. great to have you here. Thanks, Comanche Creek Farms in Chico, California. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products we discussed on today's episode at chefswarehouse.com or at your favorite specialty retailer.